We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Today's guest, Steve Cakebread, knows a great deal about subscription pricing models and IPOs. Steve has brought three notable subscription-based companies, Salesforce, Pandora, and Yext, to successful initial public offerings or IPOs and served on the board of many other subscription-based companies, including eHealth, SolarWinds, and Bill.com. Steve is frequently sought out for his advice on IPOs, often fielding three or more requests in a single week. So he decided to put his advice on the subject into a new book, The IPO Playbook, an insider's guide to taking your company public and how to do it right. The book is available on December 10th, 2020. We're going to be talking about why investors love subscriptions, what it takes to build a solid foundation, and how to tell your subscription story in a way investors will understand. Welcome to the show. Robbie, thank you very much. Great to be here. Steve. Um, let's start with some definitions. Can you define what an IPO actually is and why it's so important? Great. Yeah. An IPO is an initial public offering where you take your company's stock and for the first time trade it publicly on an exchange. It gives you access to capital markets. It gives you awareness of your business and it provides liquidity for your employees as well as gaining access to other investors that might help you run your business. So I think it's a very powerful and very meaningful step in a business, but I think it's also one that you should enjoy and um, take advantage of. Usually entrepreneurs go through the IPO route and get their companies listed publicly because it gives liquidity to their employees, or you can just keep your business and keep running it. That's what my family's done at the winery. We have a very successful business and we keep running it as if it's a real business. We have a board of directors and we have outside advisors and auditors and everything you would do is if you're public, but we run it as a private business. And we've chosen not to sell it to anybody else because we enjoy the business that we're in. And we've chosen not to go public because the business has run quite well just as a private company and doesn't need to additional capital that you might get from the public markets. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Number one, an IPO is basically a way of selling part of your business. And you may or may not want to sell part of your business. There are all kinds right. of good reasons to do it and not to do it. And I think the second point that you bring up that's really important is that even if you choose not to sell part of your business through a public offering or making it available to the public, it may still make sense to apply the same level of rigor in running your business as a private entity as you would be forced to do if you wanted to take the business public. Absolutely. I fundamentally feel, and we've seen it at our own family business, you want to operate it as it's a real business. And real businesses need financial systems 
They need business metrics. They need marketing. They need outside advisors to make sure that you're meeting all the standards that you need. And you also need access to capital. Private companies generally reinvest their capital so they don't have to go outside. But if you're a rapidly growing business, additional capital always helps you grow faster and go farther with it. And that's why most of the companies that look to IPO are rapidly growing businesses that want access to additional capital. And by the way, it's not just selling shares. Once you get listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and in my book, I talk about this a little bit in terms of you can do debt offerings, you can do convertible debt offerings. There's a myriad of ways that you can get access to a more efficient capital market when you're public than if you're private, where you have to go either work with a single bank to borrow money or reinvest as we do at the winery in our own business. So it just depends on what your longer term goal is and the rate of growth of your company, because fast growing companies do consume capital in the early days, typically, particularly subscription models, as you try and build out your sales organization, et cetera, consumes capital. Really, really helpful. As you know, the people listening to subscription stories are for the most part entrepreneurs and executives that are building subscription businesses, many of whom are doing it because they know that you know, subscription-based businesses are deemed more valuable by investors, whatever investors means to them. Right. So having an understanding of why you might want to have an IPO, why you might want to let you know, effectively bring strangers to your table is really important to consider before you take anyone's money. And if you're growing very fast and you need more capital to fuel your growth, an IPO can be a way to give you not just that first infusion of capital, but lots of additional possibilities and options to have at your disposal. But it comes at a it comes at a price, and you need to understand that as well. Well, yeah. Although you'll find that in the investors that I've worked with for Salesforce Pandora are fairly sophisticated, and they'll actually give you ideas on how to improve the value of the company. Because remember, it's all about increasing the value of the company itself. And the public markets give you probably the best look at the valuation of your company. And you're right, subscription businesses have traditionally been valued highly because of the predictability of the revenue streams and the cash flow. So those investors that you bring in in a public offering are also people that can help you move your thought process along. Just this week, having numerous calls with some of our biggest investors at Yext to get their inputs, as well as tell them what we're doing and what we, you know, there's regulations about what we can say, but there is a two-way dialogue. And I think a lot of investors these days are fairly sophisticated in maximizing or helping you think about ideas to maximize the value of your company going forward. So I think that's been beneficial. You tend to have fewer people involved if it's just in the private markets or if you're borrowing money from your favorite loan officer at the neighborhood bank. So I think you have to look at how many people you want involved in it. But I think sometimes the breadth of those investors actually adds a lot of value to your business as well. Really good point. And I like how you framed that, that if you're building a business on one end of the spectrum, you can borrow from your friends and neighbors, your local bank. And at the other end of the spectrum, you can work with the public markets to bring in a lot of different kinds of possibilities and experts, which can be incredibly empowering and give you greater flexibility as you grow and expand your, your business footprint. Exactly. 
you were part of Salesforce. How soon did you know that subscription pricing was going to be a core part of the story? And what was the impact of subscriptions on the journey to the public offering? That's a great question. And it's the history that Mark Binioff, Binioff and I share together. I was the second CFO at Salesforce. The first management team was more traditional and they kept billing customers after at the end of the month for what they use. So it's a usage billing model, which we see all the time. The thing was that that wasn't really working because you're subsidizing all your customers' cash. You know, and they may not pay on net 30, they may pay 45 or 60 days. And I likened it to- Meaning that I provide you with the service for the month and you don't pay me until the end of the month instead of the beginning of the month, or maybe even a month later or two months later. So I actually joined uh, Salesforce with Mark with the intention, we both had talked about this, with the intention of changing the business model to bill in arrears to a subscription model. And so- Mark and I got together, we talked about the subscription model. So when I joined, we joined with the full intent of putting the subscription business model into Salesforce. And within about six months, we had that model fully implemented and was going because his choice was change a subscription model or go raise more money because his company was growing, but billing in arrears doesn't generate cash to hire more salespeople or engineers to grow the business. So we went through that transition in about six months and it was purpose-built for a subscription model going forward. We changed our cash flow because now you have customers paying you in advance for the service. And in fact, the biggest change was to go from monthly billing in advance to annual. And we went through another six months of transition telling our customers, you know, we love you, but it's appropriate that you sign a one-year subscription with us and, we, and you pay us in advance. And that changed the cash flow dynamics of the company to positive instead of break-even to negative. Huge change in the business model. So it was just a different thinking about how that business model was. And literally, we were forced to either go do another financing round, which neither one of us wanted to do, or change the business model. And from there on, we never looked back. It was the best thing that we've ever done for the company. And it changed how software was sold over time. Right. It was quite revolutionary. And and the two things that I think you did so well, one of them is to make sure that people were paying at the beginning of the month instead of at the end of the month or even 30, 45 or 60 days after the end of the month. And the other thing that you did was you moved from monthly payments to annual payments, which even many, many years later it's still a question on the minds of many subscription business leaders. Do I move to annual or do I stick with monthly? Um, It sounds like for Salesforce, that was another key element of your transformation. Right, exactly. I think you can manage that transformation slowly. So you can go from monthly to quarterly, quarterly to semi-annual to annual, particularly as you get customers that are with you understand the value of your subscription and the services you provide. And then it becomes easier to have the conversation about paying the upfront annually. New customers, new customers, we started that way. This is how you get business from us. This is what you need to do is pay us upfront. You get a year's worth of service. At the end of the year, you don't like it or you don't need it or you want to grow, you can do that. So there's techniques and ways to get from where you're at to where you want to be. 
And it's managing your existing customer base and changing that to new customers just start out with you and your new business model. And that works out fine as well. Yeah. You bring up a couple of important points. One of them is that anytime you change a business model, it's really hard or it can be really hard to bring along your longtime customers Sure. because the change makes them reconsider the purchase, right? Like, wait, why right. are you changing it? Do I still want this? Does this still make sense? Let me recalculate. Right. That's one big challenge. And then the other thing is the fear that if I let them go month to month, there's less of a hurdle for them to get over. You know, a big part of subscriptions is it's easy to join. It's easy to sign up. It's a lot easier than buying software outright. But the other side of it is, well, if I require them to commit to a year up front, that's a much bigger number. And so you have to have confidence, A, that people who are really serious are going to sign up for the year and take that risk with you. And B, that you're not going to lose too many possibly great customers by requiring them to you know, clear that hurdle sure. from the very beginning. I absolutely agree with you. And we went through that drama and trauma because there was 90 days where we were marketing to our installed base saying, we're going to be changing this business models. We needed them committed to us as well, because the, the downside of monthly is you can leave at the end of the month. And so you need that installed base there because quite frankly, it costs you more to get a new customer than keep a customer. And so you want that customer committed to you, but if you're treating your customer properly, they're going to be with you. They'll make those transitions. We made all kinds of exceptions, but within about three years, everybody was up to speed on an annual billing cycle. It minimized their administrative work because imagine you have to sit down and write us a check every month. So, you know, it starts to make it so much easier once you get to less frequent billing. They knew they had the service for the year. They didn't have to re remind themselves every month to renew. So yes, there's pros and cons, but I think the long-term benefit to a business in terms of increasing its value, retaining its customers for the long-term is clearly worth it over monthly billing. Yeah. There's a bunch of really important ideas there. One of them is that having that hurdle can often help you distinguish between customers who are serious and who understand your value and, and those that might not or are not really committed, um, which is good for both sides. And that once you ease into the relationship and you say, this is how I'm going to do business going forward, says that customer, it's much easier for them to stay with you. We've seen, you know, I work with a lot of different kinds of subscription businesses, as I know you do. The biggest churn almost always happens in the early periods. Yes. Once, once that customer decides, yes, this is how I'm going to get business done, or this is how I'm going to solve my problem, in most cases, they want to kind of set it and forget it. They want right. to just pay and not think about it and have it work. And they also need to be able to trust you as an organization that you're going to continue improving that offering to better and better solve the problem that you set out to solve in the first place, that investment in innovation that you talked about. Exactly. I mean, we talk about it in my book, as you grow your business, you're always adding value to the customer. So, and in fact, that price you might pay at the beginning of the year, hopefully there's more features and values that the customer recognizes. So you're adding value to them over time and their price doesn't reflect the incremental value add. So a question I get all the time is how much should an organization, what percentage of revenue should you spend on innovation? And within that innovation, kind of new features, how much of that should be on what I would call acquisition features or headline features, you know, new and improved, now offering, 
versus what I think of as engagement and retention features, the ones that you can't really market to new prospects because they don't understand or value it, but that are super important to keep your customer, your current subscribers happy and deepen those relationships. Do you have benchmarks or thoughts on that? I do. Typically, subscription businesses do have a good relationship with their customer. And at Autodesk, as we were transitioning to subscription, we wanted to make sure that 25% of all the new features we put in were customer requested, customer expected, because it does keep them happy and it solves problems for them that they recognize. But you have to bring out new features as well. And at Salesforce, we got to a point where we were adding big new features every month and we cut back to just four times a year because nobody could absorb so much of that feature set. So you have to have a balance. Yes, the same thing. We could be adding big new features every month, but we've cut back to three times a year. But we always do have additional enhancements during the quarter or things that aren't working right. You owe your customer to fix those right away. So we do that as well. I love that. 25% on kind of customer fixes, customer improvements for the existing subscribers. That I guess means 75% are what I call headline features, features that a salesperson can talk about with a new prospect as that might attract somebody different or increase the likelihood of closing that deal. Is that fair? And that 75% is adding more value to your existing customers as well, because it's hopefully grand new features that they never would have got access to. So it helps both parties dramatically. Right. I, I think one of the challenges, you know, when I when I've worked with organizations that are moving from purchase transactions to subscriptions, is they're all kind of primed for new and improved kinds of features, new release. Mm-hmm. And they don't really invest a lot in those cleanup features or even right. in features that are optimized around expanding the relationship or deepening the relationship or making it easier for them to bring in their colleagues, which leads to the health of that all important churn number. Yep, exactly. I mean, you know, we did take Autodesk from, like I said, a purchase model to a subscription model. It took us about three years and we were very cognizant just of the problem you described is how do you keep adding value to your existing customers while at the same time bringing out new features? And we kind of rolled that into our services and support business so that over time, over that three-year period, although the business didn't grow, because you were shifting to a subscription where you're straight lining or amortizing your revenue. We did keep the customer base fairly well in line because again, it was this attention to making sure every month there were releases that helped existing customers keep the software they had and they didn't really want to leave. So yeah, the transition from a purchase model to subscription, you need to be very thoughtful. It took us 18 months to figure out what the right approach was going to be and how we didn't economically damage the company and its valuation from purchase to subscription. But once we've done that, Autodesk has been wildly successful in an internet subscription model these days. And and it was all because we took that three to four year period and made that transition that's made Autodesk what it is today in terms of business model. I'm glad you brought that up because three to four years, even five or six years to get from a transactional business model, especially for a large traditional company, that's to be expected. And understanding that it is a journey to get there. I'm really glad that you called that out. Yep. Okay. I want to ask you, we've been talking about B2B. We've been talking about software as a service businesses for the most part. I want to change things around a little bit and talk about Pandora. 
<laughs> you took Pandora public. I, I featured Pandora in my first book as an example of an organization with a clear promise to listeners. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, a lot of the processes are similar. You need good governance. You need good reporting tools. You need to be compliant with a number of different governmental agencies. You need a good board of directors. Uh, in our case with Pandora, we had uh, a whole lot of obligations to report to the recording industry in terms of plays and how many and where and the artists and the songwriters. So there was a whole lot of external reporting that we had to do to third-party agencies because they were getting paid based on those plays. But the process of going public was not that different. You get your team in place, you get the management team in place, they understand how to run a business because at the end of the day, it's about how you run that business. They need to have an understanding of the value add. Pandora's value add, I still today use it for discovering music because the algorithms that Tim Westergan put in were wonderful and I think the most innovative in the industry and still are today. But the process of going public, of getting ready, doing the things right that you had to do, and then outreaching as you went public, again, part of going public, and I talk about this in my book, is raising the visibility of your company and the credibility of your company. Because a lot of people have to participate with you in whatever business. And if you're listed on the New York Stock Exchange, there's a line that has guaranteed credibility of your business. Pandora, in a lot of ways, was not unlike taking Salesforce public or Yext. We did spend a lot of time thinking about the consumer and the listener and making sure that they had access to potentially buying the company or investing in the company. And that's why you saw us go out when we did. Again, one of my theses is you want to take your company public at a range where other individuals like myself and yourself and others can invest in it. And that range to me is somewhere between $10 and $20 a share. And so I, I think you want more people invested in your company. I think you want a lot of individual investors invested in your company, particularly at Pandora, because the individuals were listeners and a garden audience as well. But the process was very similar to Yext and Salesforce to a large degree. So having customers as investors is important to you. Yes. I think it's it keeps you connected. Having that kind of emotional attachment from a listener to the company, I think, think was a good thing. And it kept us as managers and executives connected with the listener because we would do a lot of listener events obviously bringing in bands and showcasing them along with the listeners. And a lot of listeners that come and say, yeah, I own three or five shares of your stock. I really believe in you. And that's that, that if nothing else, when you're running a business, is always nice to hear. Yeah. And especially in a membership-based business that's operating as a subscription, yep. it's really important that your, whatever you call them, your members, your subscribers, your listeners feel a connection to the organization. And certainly owning a piece of the business is a very powerful way to feel like you belong. Now, some people say that IPOs are outdated, too much work. The company is separated from the markets by a bunch of investment professionals. But I know you believe in the process. You say in the opening of your book, which I think is excellent, by the way, I'm going to make the argument that an IPO is the best long-term strategy for most companies. Beyond the funds raised, what do you think is the value of the IPO process for a subscription business? Right. Good question. This, it, one, brings discipline. The subscription business, regardless of IPO or not, is all about a disciplined 
go-to-market approach. Going public creates that governance and process discipline within your company that I think is just necessary to run a basic business. So I, I kind of view that as a push. If you're going to run a great subscription business, it probably means you have great governance. You have the metrics and, and data to understand what your customers are doing and how they're reacting to your product. That's no different than being public. The public side of it, as I describe in the book, gives those people that committed you to get the business to where it's at, liquidity in their investments. It gives you other investors, as we talked about, sometimes getting more people in to help you understand what's successful and buy your product, quite frankly, is good. Like I said in the book, the days we went public for all three companies, I was the number one marketeer in the company. I generated more leads throughout the world for all three of those businesses than marketing ever did up to that period of time. So awareness raising is never a bad thing for a company and IPOs help that out. And then you get access to all the other people, the, the liquidity effect, the awareness effect is all huge, particularly if you're gonna take your company outside the US because that's another way to get awareness built in international markets that you typically wouldn't think of if you were just in the US. Yeah, it's as much about credibility building and brand building as it is about the funds themselves, it seems. Exactly. Exactly right. You talked earlier about how you came into Salesforce to help rethink the business model, and then you took them public with Mark Benioff. How do you find a CFO who gets subscriptions? And what is it, if you're looking to bring in a CFO or somebody to take you public, what should you be looking for in that financial person who's going to be at the table, both for scaling the business, running the business, and readying it for the IPO? Not necessarily my vision. I love Mark Benioff's, when his interviews go, it's like, I have a vision. I'm hiring you to help make that happen. And as you get into it, I'm not there to change his vision, but what I am there to do as a CFO is to help improve that vision, make it more effective and efficient. And so I think number one, make sure you can have a good dialogue with your CFO. Number two, they need to have an operating background, not just a financial numbers background, because it is about the operations. This is all about running a business at the end of the day. Number three, an ability to recruit great talent. None of us know everything. And quite frankly, a rapidly growing business needs more people, not less people. So one of the strengths that I always brought to my businesses was the ability to hire great talent to help that company scale over time. And to this day, I'm most proud of the fact most of the people that joined me before we went public at Salesforce in leadership roles are still at Salesforce. $100 million business to $20 billion business, they're senior leaders there. That's great hiring at the beginning. The same thing with Pandora. I brought in a team that was still wow. there until they got acquired at Sirius. And at Yext, I hope that will be the same thing. And you can see the people growing into these roles, gaining the experience, and so that ability for a senior executive to recruit is really critical as well. We're talking in the midst of a second spike in COVID cases here in the United States. How has the global pandemic affected the public markets? What do you hear from your friends at the stock exchanges and from investors, uh, especially the private equity firms? I think there's a couple things here. One is, particularly in the arenas that I've been in, in technology and consumer, this isn't going to last forever. We will get through this to some other form of normal or near normal. So one of it is 
take your business and get it ready to grow when things turn around. And both at the winery and at the businesses I've been in, we've been really focused on keeping our workforce because when things do get better, that workforce is going to be more tenured, more skilled, and more productive. And quite frankly, they're going to see a sense of loyalty to you as an employer, which I think is really critical. On the investor side, there isn't anybody that will dispute the fact that the stock markets today are disassociated with reality in the commercial market. They're looking more forward. They're anticipating 18 months, two years, three years out, business does come back. And that's why we're trying to set our company up to respond to as that business comes back. But what you see in the stock market today does not reflect the realities of what we're all living through, staying at home. The businesses I've been involved in, we've really focused on retaining our workforce and keeping them employed where we could. Not every business can do that, but I think that's the right goal. And also know that this isn't going to last forever. And so you start to plot your way into when things change, how do you set your business up to take advantage of those changes going forward? Many people listening to this podcast are moving to subscription models or investing in subscription models so that they will be more highly valued by investors. Yep. What that we haven't covered so far is your advice to them. These transactional or episodic businesses that are moving to subscriptions to make their business more valuable. To me, it's uh, really about three things. It's have an innovative solution that customers recognize and respond to so that you're bringing value to them. Two, stay connected to your customers. And the old adage in tech is nobody, no customer would ever tell you what the future is. But the reality of it is they have near-term issues that you should be able to help them with. And so listening and making your customer successful is a really big part of the subscription business over time. And the third one is you got to have hire great people that are forward thinkers that can help you move that business forward. But at the same time, be people you like to work with. I've been really fortunate. I've enjoyed that. What advice do you have that is specifically for people moving to subscription that you think they might, you know, assuming that they're good business people, sure. but that they haven't really crossed that hurdle of <laughs> yep. building a subscription business? Yeah, I think it's like we did at Autodesk. We sat down and said, look, the business model we have isn't sustainable. We could get more value if we transitioned it. How did we do that? What compelled a customer to move to the subscription model? Put all your new features in the subscription side of the business, not the purchase side of the business. And then just know it's a two to three or maybe even five-year journey. Part of what motivated Carol and I and the rest of the management team at Autodesk is we weren't the first to try and move from purchase to subscription. There was another company, and I, and I forget the name now, but it was a medical devices company in Palo Alto. They wanted to move to subscription businesses for selling medical devices. And obviously, when you do that, like I said, your revenue is going to take a dip. And we tried to smooth that revenue out so we didn't grow, but we never dipped. We were all motivated because the board fired all the executives at this medical device company because their revenues dipped. And we're going, whoa, we believe subscription is the right way to go, but we're going to try and not have that dip because we all want a job at the end of this. And so I think it's just sitting down and spending a lot of time basically in brain work and preparation to figure out how you get through that chasm and whether it's possible to do. And I think it is for every business. Even wineries have wine clubs. We have a wine club. It's a subscription business. So um, I think the industry and the world is changing to that. 
you need to just sit down and figure out how you help that along and in your own business and what the challenges are and how you worry yourself through those challenges. Wonderful. I want to just do a quick speed round to close out if you're up for it. Okay. What was your first subscription ever? You know, my first subscription ever was to um, Pandora. Strange enough. <laughs> what is your favorite subscription today? Uh, Yext <laughs> and how it helps <laughs> you solve problems on uh, getting answers solved for customers. And the wine club. Uh, sorry. And the wine club at Cape Breton. <laughs> no, no, no bias there. Those just no, happen to be two, two random subscriptions that you particularly are enjoying. What about your favorite subscription that you have no personal um, connection to? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it's some of the applications that you find on your mobile devices for like Formula One racing or oh, NFL wow. football. So you can get into those subscription services and it's just a constant on. I also, quite frankly, have the premium services for weather because we travel a lot. And, you know, I'm done with the disruptions of, gee, the weather's so bad, the planes can't land in this city, they're taking you to another city or flights delayed. And what I found is if I can have the right weather apps with the premium services, I can anticipate pretty good what the weather's going to be and change my flights before I end up getting caught up in all that kerfuffle like Chicago's O'Hare or something like that. <laughs> and then my final question, what is the best piece of advice that you have received in the last month? That's a tough one, Robbie, because we're, you know, we don't engage. I guess it is really continue to work with your people, stay close to your people and do more networking. Actually, it's easy to start to retract with Zoom and we do this. So what I kind of dedicated to is talking to one or two people I haven't talked to in a long time and getting back connected with them and doing it on Zoom because it's a little bit more personal than a phone call. So I think it's reaching out to your network and just telling war stories of nothing else. It's like, holy, how the hell did we get here? And you know, remember when we did this and we're going to get out of it. So I think re-engaging re the network on Zoom is uh, part of what everybody's been asking me to do. Yeah, I love that. Definitely. It's so important. It's not it's not the same as being in person, but exactly. um, it's powerful. Yep. Great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest. If people want to reach you, if they want to buy your book, where should we send them? Yep. Amazon.com, the IPO playbook by Steve Kickred, be the best place. The IPO playbook. I highly recommend it. Um, Thank thanks you. again for being a guest. Yep. Thanks, Robbie. It's great to join you. That was Steve Cakebread, author of the IPO Playbook, an insider's perspective on taking your company public and how to do it right. You'll find more about Steve, as well as a transcript of our conversation at RobbieKilmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Subscription Stories.